We will be today in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and there, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come there. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, your word that we have before us. It is sharper than any two-edged sword that cuts, cuts to the very center of our being. And Lord, I pray today that as we read in your word and as we study and as we uh, commit ourselves now to this time uh, and to your word, I pray that we would see, receive it with open ears and open hearts. And Lord, just as uh, the gospel was proclaimed here in Acts chapter 16 and the heart of Lydia was opened, I pray, Lord, for the hearts of those who are here today. Perhaps there are some here, Lord, who have never believed the gospel. I pray, Lord, for them, especially today, that you would open their heart, open their ears, and help them to hear and believe the gospel. For the rest of us, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us today by your word, that you would instruct us, and that we too, even today, would be molded more and more into the image of Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We have here in our passage the first steps after what we saw last week was a, a series of, of decisions and directing and redirecting by the Holy Spirit as the Apostle Paul, along with uh, Silas, have now set out on this, their second missionary journey. And you remember from last week, uh, they had intentions of going one place or another, and uh, we're told that the Holy Spirit uh, forbade them from going to one place or another, and, uh, and then by way of a vision, Paul was directed, along with his company, to go to Macedonia and answer the Macedonian call as a vision of a man was was there uh, pleading with Paul and saying, come to Macedonia and help us. And now we come to this time where, where we see them coming to this the first place that they come to where they begin to preach the gospel, and that is this town of Philippi. And we begin to see the kingdom of God and how it is now expanding into the continent of Europe. For that is indeed where, where Macedonia is. That's where Philippi is located. And we see here the very first moments when, and, and, and if you don't realize this, this is important for us, this is good news for us, as most of us in here are from uh, a European descent, that the gospel has now come to Europe, and we see the work being done. And already today, as we come to our very next passage, our very next text, as the, the Macedonian call has been answered, as Paul, Paul's missionary journey has begun, 
already we see the fruit coming. We see the Holy Spirit's work, his directing, his leading this missionary team, already producing fruit in the life of the women here, especially this one named Lydia. And there's much that we can learn here today. And, and I'll just sort of be upfront and honest with you about uh, our sermon today. I think maybe a little more so than normal, it's going to be um, a theological sermon. There are going to be some, some doctrinal, some theological concepts that I'm going to be discussing here today that perhaps you're familiar with, perhaps you're not. But my hope today is that uh, we would see and understand where theology, uh, where it matters, why it matters, that our understanding of how God works, of who he is, of, of how salvation happens would instruct us, that it would guide us, that it would not just lead to people who have bigger brains, but that it would lead to Christians who know and love the Lord and worship him more. And so we're going to see today, we're going to answer Two questions from our text here today, uh, maybe not exhaustively, but as far as our text would, would lead us, we're going to answer two questions today. The first is that of how Christians are made, and the second is that of what Christians do. How Christians are made and what Christians do. Those are our only two points for, to, for today. Uh, there will be kind of some, uh, some subheadings, if you will, within those, but for today, uh, if you are a note taker, hopefully those two headings will help guide you and direct you as you uh, as you follow along today. So we're going to jump right in so as not to lose too much time uh, and start from, uh, from where we, we end up here. Here in this town of Philippi as uh, they set sail and, and, and by way of, of various cities and places, they make their way to the city of Philippi, a city that was called a, a leading city in the district of Macedonia and also a Roman colony. And we see here as the Apostle Paul and, and his missionary team, Silas and, and Luke, uh, and who knows, there's probably others along with them, they come to this place. And if you recall, if you think about what Paul's sort of missionary strategy is, his evangelistic strategy, as he goes from town to town, from city to city, what's the first place that he always goes, if he can? He always goes to the synagogue, doesn't he? That's the pattern that we see uh, Paul engaging in that as he comes to a town, when the Sabbath comes, as indeed the Sabbath, they, uh, they waited around in the city until the Sabbath came, and when the Sabbath comes, they go to the place of prayer. Now, we're told here that this place of prayer is one outside the city, near the river. This is most likely an indication of the fact that this, this colony, this Roman colony of Philippi, um, there, there is some speculation as to the fact that maybe there was such hostility to the gospel, such hostility to Christianity, that it was illegal, and therefore they were, uh, they were not allowed to meet, they were not allowed to have a synagogue, uh, and so they had to meet outside the city at, at a place of prayer. But most scholars believe that more than likely what this is an indication of is the fact that there were not a, enough men, enough heads of households in order to constitute a quorum and have a synagogue. For it was indeed the, the law, it was Jewish law and Jewish tradition that in order to have a synagogue in a town, there had to be at least 10 men, 10 heads of families, heads of households, in order for there to be a synagogue established there. And I think we see even from the fact that no men are mentioned in this text, but that this seemed to be a, a, a gathering primarily of, if not exclusively of, women who were gathered here for prayer. And yet this is the place where Paul goes. 
Same way he always does. While there might not be a synagogue, he goes to the place where the Jews, the people who are acquainted with uh, the Old Testament scriptures would be gathered and, and he would attempt to proclaim to them the, uh, the fulfillment of, the, the finality, the, the substance of which the shadows that they have are pointing. And so he comes to this place, as we see in verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One of the first things that we see here and, and where we begin sort of our, our uh, theological uh, concepts is that we see what is called the gospel call or sometimes called the general call. In verse 13, we see the apostle Paul comes and what does he do? He says, we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. Paul came to this place and he proclaimed the gospel. He extended the gospel call, the, the general calling of God to those who were there to repent and to believe the gospel. He proclaimed to them the mercies of Christ, what he had done, his death, burial, and resurrection. The same thing that we see the apostles preaching all throughout the book of Acts. Now he comes and proclaims to these women. And there's one particular woman here who is brought to the surface, who is brought to our attention, to whom the spotlight is directed, this woman named Lydia. A woman who's described as a, a seller of purple goods was here, who was, who was likely what we would call or what the Jews would have referred to as a God-fearer. One who recognized and, and perhaps engaged in, in worship and, and reverence and practice of worshiping the God of the Israelites, the God of the Jews. But what we know is true of, of these God-fearers, while they had some sort of knowledge, some understanding, uh, and likely they were not full converts to Judaism, uh, but yet were, were engaging in at least some practice of worship of the Jewish God, we see here Lydia falls into that category. But what we also know is that being a, uh, a quote-unquote worshiper of one God does not make you a Christian. We saw the same thing with Cornelius, a man who was a God-fearer, and yet it was not until the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached to him that he came to believe and was saved. And so true with Lydia. While she had a knowledge of God, and indeed a, a, a heart to worship God, and a desire to worship God, she had a lacking in her understanding. She didn't know Jesus Christ, and therefore didn't know and understand the full gospel. But Paul comes and he preaches the gospel to Lydia and to the other women that are there. Even though this was a small group of women, which I find to be interesting, that this group of, of women, and it was obviously very small, met in just a place by the river, Paul comes. And if you know how some of the stories, some of the places Paul finds himself, this would have been a, a very humble place for Paul to find himself. Some might even say an unimportant place compared to other times. When Paul finds himself in front of rulers, when he finds himself in city centers and in great synagogues, speaking with the learned men, the educated people of, of those places, even as he reasons in Athens and in Berea, we, we sometimes think of Paul's proclamation sort of in the streets, in the city centers, in these places where he's engaging with, with the elite among the city now we see Paul in a spot by the river preaching to a small group of women. But nevertheless, 
with the same fervor, with the same heart, with the same enthusiasm. Paul deals with these women with the same level of importance as he does in any other synagogue or any other city center in which he preached. These women, this small group of women, lowly though it might have been, was no less important and Paul gave no less attention or heed for the sake of the gospel than any other place he entered. And we can understand how he might have, especially given the cultural context in that day. And I think for us, this is a sort of helpful illustration as well. For those of us who who find ourselves with opportunities to teach. There is a tendency, and I know because I sometimes can fall into the same tendency, of giving a certain level of priority to certain occasions of gospel proclamation and gospel teaching over others. For example, we might think if we're preparing a a lesson to deliver in front of a group of, of adults, aren't we probably more inclined to really dedicate ourselves to that task, to really make sure that we get it right, that we're able to teach it in an understandable way? Maybe think even more so if you are, uh, are perhaps a layperson and, and you're going to deliver a lesson. I think about this sometimes when I go to uh, Bible studies that are going to be taught by, uh, by people in the church. I, I wonder, am I going to make them uncomfortable being a pastor here in the room? What are they feeling whenever they, they see me? Or, or for me, anytime I have an occasion to teach uh, and there's someone like Pastor Dave over at First Southern, a man who I've sat under his teaching for years and have so benefited and so look up to and admire his ability to handle the word of God. Whenever I've preached at First Southern or uh, one time when he showed up in our pews, my heart began to race a little bit. I began to feel a little more weight to what I was doing because of who was there, because of the, the significance of the people there. Sometimes maybe when we think about the way we teach children, the question we need to ask ourselves, and I think the temptation we need to be aware of not to fall into, is to take the task of teaching those with any less seriousness and give it any less attention than we would teaching adults or teaching other teachers or people who we admire and respect. I think it's, a, it's an easy thing for us to fall into, but something that we need to learn from Paul here and say, whatever occasion we have to preach the gospel Let us consider each and every time that it is worth our effort, that it is worth our preparation, that it is worth our attention. Because God has called us to this task of proclaiming the gospel, of extending the gospel call, the general call of salvation to all people. Indeed, he has ordained that this is the way he's going to save people, by gospel proclamation, whether it be from the the Bible being read or whether it be by an individual, a Christian one who knows the gospel, proclaiming it to others. And if we understand that this is the way that the Lord has ordained that the gospel is going to work, that people are going to be saved, shouldn't we every time seek to be as effective and as sharp in this task of proclaiming the gospel as we should? The answer is yes. And so maybe, maybe for you the context is, and if you don't teach much, then I would encourage you, uh, find opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Because we know and we understand that where the gospel is proclaimed, God extends his power and his authority. And we see him do that here in verse 14, where we move from, as, as the apostle is proclaiming the gospel, he's extending the, the gospel call or the general call, we see the effectual calling 
also at work. And when I say the effectual calling, I mean God's work in saving. That God himself calls sinners to salvation. And that all those who, whom he calls to salvation, he does so effectively and he saves them. He moves to save people by his effectual calling. And we see him do this in verse 14 where this one Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. When the gospel is rightly preached, there is actually a three-way interaction that's happening. There is the proclaimer of the gospel, the teacher, the speaker. There is the recipient of the gospel, the listener. So that would be me and you, the speaker and the listener. But we know and understand that when the gospel is rightly pro proclaimed, that there is another individual at work, that there is another person at work, and that is the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is not there, is absent, then there is no salvation. As we see here, it was not Paul's eloquence that saved Lydia. It was not Lydia's intelligence and her great listening skills that opened her heart. It was the Lord that opened Lydia's heart. Just as it is the Lord who opens all of our hearts. If you have believed the gospel, why have you believed it? Is it because you just really put in the right amount of effort? We know that's not true. We believe it because the Lord opened our eyes and opened our hearts to believe it. This is the effectual calling, God's work in redeeming and saving and regenerating people. How was Lydia saved? This passage tells us it was by the power of God and by the power of God alone. God opened her heart. She did not open it herself. You uh, maybe have, have seen, there's a, a somewhat famous uh, painting of, of Jesus standing outside a house, standing outside of a door. And there is a, a door there with no knob. The implication being, <laughs> if Jesus could come in, he would. If Jesus could save you, he would. And many people teach an understanding of salvation, an understanding of, of humanity's free will that says that God has done all he can do. Everything he can do to save you, he has done. He now stands on the other side of a door with no knob on that side, impotent, waiting for you to open the door for him, waiting for you to do your part to be saved. But is that what the gospel says? Is that what reality is of how people are saved? That God has done everything he can do and now salvation rests in our hands alone? That we have to do our part? He's done the 99%. We have to do the 1% of letting him in, of letting his work be accomplished. Just ask Lydia, is that what happened? No, the Lord busted down the door of her heart. The Lord opened it. He didn't knock, and then she opened it, and belief and faith happened. The Lord opened her heart. What we see in this example of Lydia's salvation is that the work of salvation is not a cooperative work. The work of conversion is not one that we participate in and, and exercise along with the Lord, it is not what we would call synergistic, meaning that we cooperate along with the Lord. 
that both of us have a role to play and work to do in order to accomplish the salvation. The Lord does his part, we contribute our part, and then we are saved. No, we do not help out in our conversion. We don't work side by side with God helping get the job done. It's done by God and by God alone. So that he alone deserves the glory. He alone deserves the credit. He alone deserves the praise. Conversion is what we call monergistic, meaning that it is a work of God alone. That's why we have the descriptions and pictures of salvation that we have. Salvation and conversion described in these ways, such as new birth, as Jesus describes it to Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. Ask yourself, what does a, a person do to be born? Nothing. Just like your physical birth, you played no role in it. You contributed nothing to it. You were just born. It just happened to you. So in our spiritual birth, in our new birth, it is something that the Lord does in us. Or, or think about the description of us as dead in our sins and brought to life by Christ. What can a dead man do to save himself? For indeed, that is our state. In our sin, apart from Christ, we are dead. There is nothing that we can do until the Holy Spirit breathes life into us. And it is a work that he does alone or consider our adoption. What role does a child play in adoption except being the glorious recipient thereof? These are the realities that we have laid out for us describing what salvation is, what conversion is. It is something that God does for us. If the doctrine of total depravity is true, or, or what we would also call total inability is true, that is that we are corrupt and broken, and that there's nothing that we can do to move ourselves into a state of grace, as the scriptures teach us. If this is true, then we have no other possibility of being saved apart from the effectual calling and work of God. And indeed, this doctrine is true. We see it all throughout the scriptures. We see it in Romans 8, verses 6 through 8, where the apostle Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is what Paul writes for us. That those who are in the flesh, and who are those? Those are unbelievers. Those who are lost. And those who are in the flesh, in that state, cannot please God. We're unable to. John chapter 6, verse 44, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We see in these verses, in this reality, in this doctrine, our utter dependence upon God for salvation, for the salvation of ourselves, for our children, and for all who would ever believe. It is a work that God does. I'm not going to get all the way into the the full implications of this, for they're vast, we would take several sermons to get through all of that. But if nothing else, take heart in this and knowing that because it is a work that God does in us, it is a work that we cannot ever undo. That we cannot fail in our salvation because we don't save ourselves. And therefore we have hope and assurance. We have a reason for, for celebrating and for rejoicing and to not be left in despair we are like Lazarus, whom Jesus calls out of the grave. Lazarus, come out. 
That is a great picture of what the Lord does for us in effectual calling and regeneration is that he speaks life into us by his power, not anything that we do. This is what makes Christians, this is how Christians are made. They are made by God and by God alone in his work. He uses us, doesn't he? He uses people to proclaim the gospel, to extend the gospel call or the general call, but it is only the effectual call when the Lord, by his spirit, opens our eyes to the gospel that we believe. If, if you're a believer in here today, then you can perhaps also recognize this. I know for me, as a, one who came to faith in Christ that, as a teenager, that there were times when I heard the gospel before I believed it. I think there was certain, certainly something to be said for, um, for the, the church context that I was in. I think it was lacking. Uh, but I don't think it would be right or fair to say that I never heard the gospel. I think I did. But I think it wasn't until the Lord moved to open my eyes, to overcome my sinful nature, my depravity, it wasn't until then that the, the doors of my heart were opened and my eyes were opened and I could see and truly understand and believe the gospel. And that's true for all who have believed. It's something that the Lord does in us. And point number two, we know now how Christians are made, but what do Christians do? Again, this is not going to be an exhaustive list. I refer you to the New Testament for that. But what this is, I think it's a helpful, uh, especially summation of what it looks like when one is converted to Christ. And, and I think what the, the next steps rightfully ought to be. And we see from the example of Lydia that first and foremost, what Christians are called to do is we're called to be baptized. After verse 14, where she is saved, she hears the gospel call. The Lord calls her effectually, saving her by his power. And then what's the next thing that she does? She's baptized in verse 15. Now, there are many who see this reference to baptism, as we'll, we'll read in verse 15. After she was baptized and her household. A lot of people will take this passage, and uh, along with other passages later on in this chapter, and they will say, that this is proof of the, uh, the paedo-baptist position. That is, that baptism is to be given to, to infants, to children. They would look at this and say, you see, Lydia was saved. She's baptized, her and her whole household. And I might not get into the entirety of the debate, but uh, we are a Baptist church here. And so I would reject that and say that, uh, indeed, this is not in any way teaching that baptism is to be given to Infants, uh, simply I would say we see from her example that baptism comes after conversion. But in the case of Lydia and her household, all of them heard the gospel, believed, were converted, and then were baptized. Indeed, here we see uh, uh, the, the debate kind of uh, uh, coming to, to a head here and then later on in Acts 16 when we see the same thing of the Philippian jailer and his family. This debate over whether or not baptism is to be given to infants or whether or not it is reserved for believers only as is the Baptist position. I was reading one uh, particular um, well-known and intelligent Presbyterian writing on this, on this very passage and regarding the doctrine of baptism. And, uh, and by the way, he's a, an author that I love a lot and will continue to read and benefit from even though 
Uh, I disagree with him on this issue of baptism. But this is what he says about the baptism debate. He says, since there is no explicit teaching one way or another, we need to be very patient and charitable with each other, acknowledging that both sides of this controversy want to do what is pleasing to God. And indeed, we can agree with that, 100%. There is no explicit command given in Scripture that says baptism is exclusively for those who have professed faith, and it is to be done by immersion. That's true. We don't have that explicit command. But then he goes on to say this. They just differ, they being the people on both sides of this debate. They just differ as to what that is. And they differ about it because the New Testament is silent about it. And it was here when I said, okay, hang on a second. Because there is no explicit command, is it a true and right statement that the scriptures are silent about the proper form of baptism? I would contend to you, no, they are not. No, they are not. The pattern that we see over and over again throughout the book of Acts and through the rest of the New Testament is faith followed by baptism. That's what we see in Acts 2.41 after uh, Peter preaches the sermon at Pentecost. And then Luke records for us, so those who received his word, those who received his word, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Who were baptized? Those who received his word, just like Lydia, who heard it and believed it and were saved, and then they were baptized. Acts 10, 47 through 48. Again, the example of Cornelius' house, where Peter again proclaims, after seeing the Holy Spirit come upon them, and they began speaking in tongues, and, and it was confirmed that the Holy Spirit had now come, salvation had come to the Gentiles. And this is what Peter says. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to remain for some days. We see here again, what is the model? What is the order? What is the form of baptism? It is those who have professed faith in Christ. Faith always in the scriptures comes before baptism. This is the picture we have over and over and over again. Even in our chapter today, which is home to some of the Pado baptists favorite passages. Even here, though, the primary subjects of the stories, that being Lydia, and then later on the Philippian jailer, they are the primary subjects of the, of the stories, are they not? Right? That they are the ones who, their conversion is described. They are the ones uh, at the center, the focal point here. And even for both of them, what is the order? What is the model? It is faith and then baptism. Indeed, I, I love my Presbyterian and Lutheran and, and Anglican brothers and sisters in Christ who, who hold to a Pado-Baptist position, and I, uh, I accept them as, uh, though wrong on this issue, brothers and sisters, believers. We cannot say that the scriptures are silent on this. The scriptures clearly show for us, even in the description that Paul gives in Romans chapter six of what baptism represents, the representation of our union with Christ, being buried with him in the grave and raised to walk in newness of life. How can you get around this picture that it is of believers, of those who are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection? And by the way, as a side note, the only form of baptism that's clearly taught in the scriptures is baptism by immersion, but I digress. Those who believe the gospel and trust in saving power of Christ 
are called to identify themselves with him in baptism. And this is true of all believers. That there is no category for a believer who rejects baptism. A believer who says, yes, I belong to Christ, but you know what? I don't really feel the need to identify myself with him in that way. I don't really see the importance of baptism. There is no category for this kind of believer who falls into this camp of, of a follower of Christ, united with him, but one who rejects the marker of the new covenant, the one who rejects the sign that he is Christ's. It's almost like a, a military person who desires to be in the military, who wants to go through the training, who, who, who becomes a, a part of the military and yet would refuse the uniform. He, it doesn't make any sense, does it? One who says, yes, I want to serve my country. Yes, I want to uh, do what, uh, what, what needs to be done to defend this country, but I really just don't want to wear the uniform. It's just, green's not my color. It's embarrassing, you know, what would other people think? That's foolishness, right? No one would think that way. It's a joy, it's an honor to bear and to wear the uniform as a military person. For those of you who, who remember, there was a, a man who used to come to our church. He was actually uh, Matt Castro's grandfather. His name's Paul. And Paul, if you ever talked to him for more than about 30 seconds, you'd know that he was a Navy officer because he talked a lot about his time in the Navy. He was very proud of what he had done for his country, and rightly so. A, a guy who had worked up to the highest rank possible of officer without having gone to, uh, to college. And he was very proud of what he had done. And, and indeed, there was something particularly noteworthy about, about that. He was not ashamed of the uniform. He was not ashamed of this time. He was proud. For Christians, we are called to obey Christ's commands and identify ourselves with him in baptism. And the question has to be asked, if you don't want that, why not? Why would you not want to identify yourself in Christ's way, in this way? Identify yourself with Christ. This is what we are called to. And finally, beyond just baptism, when we think about what is it that Christians do, we see the next example from Lydia is that Christians exercise unity with and love for the people of God. Right after she's saved and then she is baptized, we see this picture from Lydia that she urged us, urged the Apostle Paul, Luke, Silas, urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She invites them into her home. She invites them to come so that she might express her love and, her, and, and share and, and food and, and open up her home to them. We see her engaging in godly hospitality here. This same kind of hospitality and love for the people of God and openness of home would ultimately result in Lydia's home becoming the very meeting place for the church in Philippi. Her home would become the place that the church meets. We see in Lydia a picture of the love for and commitment to God's people. We see in her a love for and commitment to the local church. What are Christians supposed to do? We're called to be baptized. We're called to be committed to the local church. And there are obviously more things that Christians are called to do. Not only is this not an exhaustive list, it's a very short list. But if you maybe are new to the faith, or maybe you know someone who's new to the faith, 
And they have this question, okay, I've come to faith in Christ. What do I do now? Here's your answers. Be baptized and find a local church and commit yourself there. Those are what we are called to do as believers. First and foremost, this is what believers do. As we conclude today, if I were to put a, a sort of summary statement, a most important thing of what we ought to learn today, even though we've discussed baptism, we've discussed church membership, the most important thing I want us to learn today is that salvation is of the Lord. That it is God who saves by his own good pleasure, by his will, and that he doesn't need us, nor can we do anything to contribute to our salvation. It is a work of God alone. There was one preacher uh, by the name of Brian Borgman who, um, he says he stole this illustration from someone else. I'm gonna steal it from him now. And he said, when you come across a turtle on top of a fence post, you must conclude that someone put that turtle there. That turtle did not get up on the fence post by himself. If you can imagine it, just for a moment, a turtle sitting up on top of a fence post. Maybe his little legs flapping in the wind, who knows. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that turtle did not get there on his own. That would be ludicrous, that would be silly. Someone put that turtle there. And now I want you to take that over and think about the salvation of sinful people. Think about the place that if you belong to Christ, where you now are found, adopted as a child of the king, redeemed, seated with Christ, heir along with Christ, co-heirs in all things. What a place of honor we find ourselves in. And is there a single one of us who would consider where we now are in Christ Jesus and the place that we now hold and think, yeah, I helped get myself here. That would be silly. It would be just as silly as saying a turtle climbed up a tiny little fence pole and put himself on top. We are in, if you are Christ, if you are a believer in here today, you are in this place because God has done it. He has saved you. And therefore, rejoice in that. When we realize the power of God to save and that it is a complete working of him alone, we ought to be left rejoicing and praising his name, understanding the way God saves as an act of his alone, out of his love and by his own will and power. This keeps us in a right, with a right view of God as supreme in all things and the only one that is due any credit for salvation. The moment we lose this and put even one ounce of effort on man, one ounce of, of work to be done by us in order to be saved, we elevate our authority and we decrease God's. And we distort the gospel. When we recognize this reality and we rejoice in it, we celebrate in it what God has done for us, are we not also left and rightly so thinking, why me? How could this be that the Lord would look at a wretch like me, knowing I did nothing to deserve it, did nothing to earn it, why would he look at me and choose to extend his grace to me? And that is a good question. It's a question asked by the, uh, the hymn writer Isaac Watts, who he sums up this idea, this question quite beautifully in a song that's titled, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. 
the word awful here, just to give a clarification, is not uh, meaning uh, bad the way we sometimes use the word awful nowadays, but when he wrote it, he, he means awe-filled. That is, how, how sweet and awe-inspiring or awesome is the place. And this is what he says in this hymn. And if this doesn't sum up what it feels like to be saved by God, then I don't know what does. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. While everlasting love displays the choicest of her stories. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Doesn't this get beautifully at the heart of the question, the heart of the believer, even asking the question, if we rightly understand this truth of God's work in salvation, doesn't it leave us asking, Lord, why was I a guest? What a good question that is. And it also leads us to this, which the song continues. Pity the nations, O our God. Constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. We long to see thy churches full that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. It also leads us to understand and rightly see the purpose of mission, the purpose of evangelism, and how to do it properly. And that is that we must be crying out to the Lord to save. That if our efforts to preach the gospel, to proclaim the good news, are going to be effective, it is only going to be so because the Lord is going to work. And may the Lord give us this desire described in this psalm. A desire to see the nations constrained, to see them come, to see his churches full and with one voice and heart and soul sing of his redeeming grace. The Lord has the power to save and he has called his church to preach the gospel to those who have not believed. The words of this hymn help us to see how we ought to think and pray for those who have yet to believe. If we long to see his churches full, pray that the Lord would fill them because he is able, and only he is able. Pray that he would save, and then go and preach his word. Let's pray.